This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Coming up, we've got all the news and views from Manchester City's week. It's your club, and this is your show. Well, that didn't quite go to plan, did it? City have lost their first game of the season for the first time since before the Blue Moon podcast started. It's been a good run and it had to come to an end sometime, but when that opening day defeat did come, many of us would have hoped the performance would have been a little better than it was. So welcome to today's Blue Moon podcast, a safe haven for those who are trying to work out how to react to City losing their first game for the first time in 13 years. We'll be discussing that match at Spurs, plus we'll be looking at how the team can get back on track as we welcome Norwich to the Etihad on Saturday. Also, this week, as another parody of the famous Welcome to Manchester poster appears in red in Salford, we're speaking to some of the brains behind the original in an attempt to explain why the remakes always seem to miss the joke. I'm David Mooney. Joining me this week is City fan Richard Burns. Hello there. And the Manchester City fan brands editor at Reach, Dom Farrell. Hi there, you alright? I'm not too bad, thanks Dom. Uh, now that I've managed to get your job title out in about the 15th take. There we go. Um, so, uh, just like me, Dom, uh, City looked not prepared for uh, for that game uh, at Spurs. See, it's smooth, very, very smooth links on this show. That's what we're going for. Um, we said last week that we were worried about City's preparedness. Um, it turns out we were right to be worried, really, didn't it? Yeah, does that mean we're going to have a really strong first 20 minutes and it's not then just going to go to pot? Um... You've, you've listened to this show before. You know <laughs> you, you know that it, that it starts badly and gets worse, so... Um... Well, yeah, obviously, I mean, yeah, Guardiola did, did flag it all up and you sort of, you, you maybe hope that is, is he doing a little bit of a double luff? But yeah, it was, he mentioned the game at Wolves last year, but at Wolves they played well for about 60, 65 minutes. This was 15 to 20. Um, yeah, not not the best really. And um, a lot of, it, it, it sort of became one of those performances where, and I think you can include last season, a very successful season and the season before being not so good in it. It became that this sort of era of City of Guardiola City. It became that kind of bad performance of didn't really look like equalising, even though they had plenty of time to do so. Looked very vulnerable on the break. So it was um, it was uncomfortably familiar, even though obviously it is very early in the season and there are decent mitigating circumstances that a lot of the players have just come back to training. Yeah, I mean, Richard, the, the the performance and the issues around it, is it purely down to fitness or is there a little bit more kind of a niggling doubt in there that when City go behind, they do struggle? Yeah, I, th- I think there's, it's, there's probably uh, a hint of both in there. I mean, I, I don't think you can escape the fact that first game of the season, following an international tournament, following two seasons that were basically rolled into one long season, of course you're going to have uh, an issue with how prepared and, and how fit a team can be. I think it's clear that um, it probably wasn't City's first choice 11 um, when you consider that <laughs> what City wants to be the first choice 11 includes a Tottenham player at the moment. <laughs> so um, it, it's not the team that City are going to want to go through the full season with as a starting 11. The defence probably the um, the ultimate example of that. Um, but also, you can't escape the fact that there's some recurring themes in there. It's I, I worry, and I think a lot of City fans do, when City go behind now. Um, because they're not... Although, of course, um, I, I'm sure you'll, you might bring up examples of where we have successfully turned games round, um, because... Th- there have been some, clearly. There were times last season when, even in that fantastic run of 20-odd 
consecutive wins. Of course, there were times when they had to dig in. So it, it's not like they're not um, like they can't dig in. It's not like they can't be gritty. But there is something about going behind that, that seems to be an issue for them. They seem to um, to be slowed down quite easily. You know, there were times in that game where it was literally at a walking pace when. You know, even to the most casual observer, you'd probably say they needed more urgency, um, and they just didn't have it. And I think this season there's there's going to be increased competition. I don't think if we do win the league, I don't think it'll be won by sort of double figure points totals this time. The competition around us has improved. There are going to be times in big games where we're, where we're going to be behind or we're going to be conceding chances, and you've got to dig in and um, and you've got to be able to to re-establish yourself in a game because we play opposition that are good enough to establish themselves and get a foothold. You have to be able to turn that around. So yes, there are mitigating circumstances, but they are not mitigating circumstances that are entirely unique to city. And, um, and if you let that become the, um, the focus of the conversation after then I think you let them off the hook for something that is a bit of a recurring problem. Yeah, Dom, um, about 15 minutes or so into the game, I remember tweeting about City's ridiculous record at Spurs where they create chance after chance after chance, miss it, Spurs score on the break and the XG at the end of the game looks like City should have scored 300, Spurs should have scored 0.01 and they've managed to get a 3-0 win or whatever. Um, And you replied to me, it had the makings of an absolute classic City away at Spurs. Was this an absolute classic City away at Spurs? Because I feel like, like... Spurs in previous games City had a lot more control and missed ridiculous chances whereas in this one City missed good chances but they didn't have as much control did they? Yeah I think if we sort of look at the four games at the new Spurs stadium with no goals and Son Heung-min I think scoring in every game or I think I think that's the case. yeah he has actually um, there was the one where Zinchenko got sent off and then they scored twice under Mourinho where that was like ludicrous dominance. That was one of City's best performances of that period of the 2019-20 season. Um, and that was just a silly game. But the um, the others, I say the Champions League one was where Pep went to sort of be uncharacteristically safe. He was juggling the, you know, the well, the quadruple bit as it was at the time uh, in that season. Um, last season's one was, I think, was probably more like this one in that um, once City were behind, admittedly they were behind very early there, um, you didn't think they'd get back in and there was a massive vulnerability on the break. But yeah, for all the things that after the 15, 15 20 minutes or so, it wasn't a great performance at all. You've got you've got four guilt-edged chances. I mean, I think the, the Fernandinho header being just massively miscued and the Cancelo chance, which were inside the first five minutes, which is when I messaged you. Um, I think you forget how good a chances though are because they, those are because they fall into you know players that don't tend to score, um, but they they should be put away. Um, and yeah, the, the Mares and Torres misses are terrible. I mean, particularly the Torres one. This is a guy who last season it was the big plus of his first season is this is a guy who looks like he's got a sense of goal in the box. But it's amazing how the um, the sort of the city missed chances lurgy seems to spread around. I mean, I, I seem to remember that last season. It was Foden was the guy who was dead eye in the box, but then obviously the game he got the winner against Dortmund. There were several chances that night he missed. It sort of it, it does seem to be a contagious thing among City attacking players that anything from four yards suddenly becomes not a gimme. It's um, it's quite strange. <laughs> 
Yeah. Um, Richard, well, let's let's focus on the positives from that game. It might only be 15 minutes, but let's look at the uh, the opening 15 minutes. Um, what signs did you see in that part of the performance to suggest how City will develop this season? Well, they were, um, I, I think in that opening period, they were, I mean, they forced the initiative, as you would expect City to do. It's very much... Um, a part of Guardiola's style of play that you expect his team to be the one that Im- impose themselves on a game and the opposition vast majority of time are the ones who have to uh, sort of be reactive rather than proactive and we definitely definitely saw that in the opening period uh, against a you know for all Spurs have had um, they've had a, a tough old time of it recently they they're not a terrible team um, they're they're a very decent team you'd still expect them to be up around at the very least the top six this season. Um, and, and yet City definitely imposed themselves on the game first and they created chances. So the fact that we're talking about missed, uh, almost guilt as chances and, and, you know, players, the quality of Torres and, and Mares, you'd expect them to be doing better with them. But that shows that we created those chances and, and, and that's obviously a good thing. Um, and, and there is maybe a point to say in opening game of the season, you can possibly excuse a little bit of rustiness. Um, and there was, it was fluid football. It was, um, you know, it was it was fast, um, and yeah, it was it was m- much more in line with what you expect from City and, and frankly from defending champions than uh, than the rest of the game showed. So it was only a short period, but um, it's not like that quality that City have got has suddenly disappeared. It, it is there. Um, they, they're going to show it across the season. I'm, I'm absolutely sure of that. So yeah. The, there were positives and it was mostly that, that City can still be City. Yeah. Dom, the, the other um, aspect that we haven't talked about yet is Jack Grealish. Um, I saw I saw an interesting piece from you today, actually, um, about uh, just along the lines of a lot of people have said he was an unnecessary sign and City have got a lot of quality in that area already. Um, you were making the case that uh, that he might be able to, to increase the number of chances City created, a la David Silva. Yeah, I've said he's the new David Silver, and it's all going to be my fault now. Um, no, <laughs> the, the premise of the piece was that yeah, there's been a lot of this is a luxury signing. Why haven't they bought a striker? And yeah, there's you can definitely see the point that it's all very well having great creators without having someone to get on the end of them. That is hopefully something that gets addressed, but before the end of the window. But um, it was just seeing that opening 15 minutes against Spurs when Grealish was you know at the forefront straight away, which is. Pretty unusual for a new attacking sign in the Guardiola team, and the way he, him and Sterling linked up down the left really well. It, it kind of it reminded me a little bit of when Silver would get in those pockets and link with Sane, and they, you know, in that sort of 2017-18 period, the hundred, the, the Centurion season, when they kind of overload and overwhelm teams there just and rack up the goals. It's the teams evolved a little bit, and I think. While a lot of that's been good, there's been a huge creative burden, particularly last season on Kevin De Bruyne. I mean, I, unfortunately, I can't rattle the numbers off the top of my head, but in the article, um, it shows that Kevin De Bruyne, in terms of chance creation per 90 minutes, is sort of up at around something absurd, like five or six chances a game he's involved in, either with the last pass or the the pass before the pass or a dribble. Um, Gundian and Bernardo, who obviously are guys with vast, vast qualities, um, irrespective of what their two futures at the club might look like. And Gundo had that run of scoring lots of goals last year, but there's um, they would maybe create an average of about three or so a game. 
Grealish is up in the sort of silver De Bruyne category of averaging about five chances created a game, which he did. He was involved in five uh, sort of goal scoring opportunities coming to pass against Tottenham. So yeah, it's that thing of it will ease it can ease the burden on De Bruyne. It can maybe mean that when they play together, maybe the first time this weekend, De Bruyne can be more concentrated on that right channel where he just whips those killer balls in, and yeah, someone could miss them from four yards yeah. <laughs> all season long. Yeah, um, Richard. The other the other aspect of this game is the whole Harry Kane story. Um, d- did this game push the asking price up a little bit more, and did it push up what City should have to pay a little bit more? Because there was uh, th- at one point the the Tottenham fans were singing um, about Harry Kane, and uh, you know, are you watching Harry Kane? And uh, the answer was probably yes. And look at all these chances I could create for the away side. Yeah, I mean, you'd, you'd imagine from uh, from Tottenham's point of view of course it, it it gives them the stronger hand in any negotiations if they're willing to come to the table doesn't it because it, it proved exactly why City want Kane um, I think it's I mean we all know how much Pep wants him he's even taken the unusual step of, of confirming that in a press conference when he normally doesn't uh, doesn't talk about opposition players in that kind of way Um Harry Kane is for um, for all the arguments that people might have against paying the kind of money that that Spurs want, um, and you know his age and, and all the rest of it. Harry Kane is one of the best strikers in in world football, unquestionably. He can score every type of goal. Um, he can create for himself. Not that he'd have to do much of that in City's team. Um, he would score goals in City's team. I think um, there's not. Of course, any signing can go wrong, but as long as he stayed fit, there's sort of not much more guaranteed than if City signed Harry Kane, he scores a lot of goals. So, of course, in a game where you create chances and don't score goals, then you see exactly why you want that kind of player and, and City need one. So whether it's um, whether it's Kane or not, I think they have to get a striker over the line. It's going to be a different season to last season. They're not going to get away without playing a striker. Um and, and further to that, I think more than anything, what showed why they need a striker was bringing on Gabriel Jesus. Um, I could have watched that game and if I blinked for his substitution, I wouldn't have known he was on the pitch. I mean, he was, and I'm sure there's other factors to that. Like it's, a, it's a team game. You've got to bring a striker into play and everything. But um, I, I thought he was in, completely anonymous. Uh, and I think that is, for as much as people will point to his goal record as an argument, I think that is all too common a problem with him and he's not developed in the way that we hoped he would, uh, which leaves City in a position where they're going to have to pay big money for a top striker. And if they do that, then I think it probably gets them over the line to winning the league again. But without that, I, I don't know which way it lands. Yeah. Um, Jonathan Seville on Twitter asks, Dom, uh, if Kane or Haaland are not available this summer, do you think there may be a surprise alternative? Um, could there be? Um, well, you would hope so. I mean, so, so from everything we hear, it looks like um, Guardiola and Chiki Bagheristan's uh, strategy is basically Kane or bust. Um, as Richard says, there's so much about Kane is just ideal in terms of obviously his goal record, also the way he links the play and can drop in and the runners get... It, it, I can see why he's viewed as the absolute ideal. Um, I, when when they signed Grealish, I know Guardiola talked glowingly about wanting to sign him the first time he saw him and Cheeky being in love with him. I think if they signed Kane, there'd be very, very similar things said. Having said that, um, we saw what happened the season. They didn't replace Vincent Kompany 
um, and kind of thought to then muddle through. Then Ruben Diaz came in as the replacement and was obviously brilliant, sort of swept a few awards. It's worth remembering Ruben Diaz wasn't the first name on the list. He was, you know, they went through Koulibaly and Koundé. You know, they do have these lists at the CFA um, of players they've looked at. Um, I know it's um, from Fiorentina, Dusan Vlahovic is the guy that's been spoken about as of last night. Um, there'll be players there and players who are capable. Um, I, ju- I just think it would look a little bit like the not replacing Vincent Company because, yeah, they played most of last season without Aguero. He missed a lot of the season through injury, like company in his last season. But I, I don't think you just leave gaping holes where these great players go away. And I think, given the, as we've mentioned, the increased strength of the, the chasing pack this year, I think it's asking for trouble if they don't buy a centre forward. Final point for the first part of the show, Richard. Uh, it's the first opening day loss for 13 years. Uh, have you forgotten what it's like to lose on the opening day? Well, yeah, I mean, we're used to City going into the season and, and setting a pace, aren't we? Um, it's not always brilliant. Um, there's there's been wins that they've scraped to, and there's been there's been sensational opening day wins, but they usually, um, well, they don't they don't lose them anymore, do they? So um, it'll be interesting to see how they react to that because the main rivals have have posted uh, really decent victories on the opening day. Chelsea, Liverpool, United were all um, either very, very impressive or, you know, sort of did the job and racked up a few goals. So nothing's decided the first weekend, um, a most obvious statement, but uh, it's, it's also not an ideal start. Yeah, well, uh, there is one thing we do have to do about that, though. It's <laughs> a quiz! <laughs> On the last time, City lost their first game of the season. There we go. Love doing these. Uh, sorry to do it on your first shows of the season, but the pair of you, but there we go. Um, six questions, uh, three each. Pick a number between one and six. Dom, I'm going to let you go first because I don't think you've done one of these quizzes yet. I'll have number four. Uh, number four. City wore their third kit the afternoon that they lost on the uh, opening day of the season last time. What was the main colour? It was orange. Absolute shocker. It was orange. 1-0. Richard? Bad third kit's topical. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One. Question number one. Who was fouled for the penalty that City scored their opening goal from? Uh, And uh, the game that they lost? Yep, the game that they lost back in 2008. Uh, Sylvan Diston. Uh, no, it was Michael Johnson. This Dan, of course, having left two seasons earlier. Um, yeah, Dom. I, I don't <laughs> Number two, please. Number two. Uh, which future City player assisted two of Gabriel Bonlahor's three goals that day? Well, um, it's, uh, it's Gareth Barry. It was Gareth Barry. 2-0. Richard, you need this? Six. Number six. What surname is shared by a City player and an Aston Villa player who both finished 90 minutes that day? Uh, uh, Johnson Uh, no it was a nice idea (laughs) a common surname you're right but uh, no it was uh, Petrov Stillian and Martin so uh, Dom's the winner you're playing just for pride now Dom what would you like Um, three Uh, number three uh, which City player scored their first goal for the club that day and it was a late consolation 
It's and th- at this point, I should say, I wrote something about this game this week, so it, I've, it's a farce. It's unfair. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I know it's Vedran Luca. Uh, it was veteran Joe Luca. Richard, um, I'm sorry that you've been on the uh, the thin end of this wedge, but uh, there we go. Question number five. Uh, who was City's captain that afternoon? Um, Richard Dunn. Uh, it wasn't Richard Dunn because he was still suspended from the season before. <laughs> uh, it was Micah Richards. So uh, a, th- a a 3-0 thrashing you've taken there, I'm afraid, Richard. Is, um, am I right in thinking that sort of forgetfulness and, uh, and bad memory is a vaccine side effect because I was second jab yesterday so that's my excuse uh, I, I don't think it is I'm afraid I don't think it is damn a resounding win congratulations <laughs> thanks if I'd done this the day after my second Moderna I'd have been um, well I could barely talk it was absolutely, <laughs> absolutely grim this is the Blue Moon Podcast facebook.com slash blue moon podcast so a resounding win for dom uh, congratulations on the first quiz win of the season but now it's time to move on uh, and it's one of the most iconic pieces of marketing that city have ever done and it's worked so well so well in fact that every time manchester united sign a player a parody appears in red somewhere in salford back in 2009 the words welcome to manchester got under the skin of everybody at old trafford in a way that probably couldn't have been expected i've been speaking to the people behind that poster to find out the story of why the club did it. Picture the scene. It's summer 2009, newly minted Manchester City are flexing their financial muscles and they've nicked a player from under the noses of their rivals. And then someone had an idea. There was definitely some trepidation. So I, I, uh, when I originally got the the, the idea through from the agency, I went to talk to Gary Cook and Vicky Kloss, you know, who was the head of, head of PR and, and uh, media relations, um, because they were much more, uh, they'd been closer, I guess, to the ownership. And so they had a much better understanding of, of the kind of sensitivities around that. And I have to say, when I first talked it through with them, neither of them was particularly keen. Um, because they thought it would be perceived as antagonistic, that it would be perceived as, you know, us kind of getting in United's face. That's David Pullen. He was the chief brand and marketing officer at City at the time. The idea from the marketing agency Anomaly was simple. It was a poster in blue featuring new signing Carlos Tevez and the phrase, Welcome to Manchester. Behind the scenes, there were nerves because the new owners wanted to be judged on their actions at City and not by what they were saying. Johnny Vulcan is one of the founders of Anomaly who were brought in by Gary Cook before Sheikh Mansour's takeover. He explains what their role was. Everything from rethinking ticketing, rethinking media, rethinking kind of the marketing footprint of the club, and then specifically tactical opportunities um, that really spoke to the heartland of the club. And I think that was one of the balances that we found when, when, when Gary arrived, that the marketing was really about ticketing. It was about filling the stadium on the weekend. Um, and it was very focused on local and the website design was local news and local information. The poster was an opportunity to speak to the local fans, as David Pullen explains. The new ownership had come in, no real understanding or history with the culture of football and not really much of a connection with Manchester as a, as a city. And, you know, what, what was really crucially important for us was, was signalling to the fans, particularly the fans within Manchester, 
that we A, understood them, and B, that we cared about their point of view. And we could say it till we were blue in the face, but the best way to do it would be to actually show it by, again, signalling, by actually doing something, in the same way that Abu Dhabi was all about actions, not words, that we should do something rather than just talk about it. It's such a simple joke, but it strikes a chord with so many City fans. You can't afford to lose the core, and you have to do things that are going to delight the core, particularly if it's at the expense of the the local neighbours. And um, I think Tevez was such a gift <laughs> in that sense and an opportunity. I think it was such a, a truth to the city that City fans always felt, well, there's only one club in Manchester and there's another club down the road, but that isn't Manchester. So when Tevez was signed, it was like, well, we can welcome him to Manchester now. He's, he's going to be actually in the city. There's more to it than that, though. David Pullen explains how they thought about every little detail. The site was very deliberately bought. It's the first site in Manchester as you come from Salford into Manchester. It's the first poster site there is. So the positioning of it, welcome to Manchester, because now you're in Manchester. That's the kind of level one message. But obviously facing into Salford has a whole load of other messages about, you know, there's only one club in Manchester and all of that sort of city law around that. So it, it worked on so many different levels. And that was the genius of the creative idea, which we, I guess, amplified with the way we actually bought the media by putting it in that particular location. The billboard was also high up, so it couldn't be vandalised. I would drive past it every morning just to go and have a look. You know, and every morning there'd be a load of... So what the United fans used to do was take socks filled with red paint and throw them at the poster because they couldn't reach it, they couldn't pull it off. So in the morning, every morning, there'd be a pile of socks, red socks at the bottom of the poster because they were trying to paint it red. And, and you know, this is pre-Instagram, pre, you know, the visual kind of web thing. Um, but people would go and take selfies. You know, there were, there were lots and lots of people would be there every day taking pictures of themselves. Um, so I think, yeah, as a, as a piece of communication, it was remarkably effective. Johnny Vulcan was also surprised at the impact that those three simple words had. It was probably pre-using social media for everything. And I, th I, th I think it would have ignited much quicker, actually, on social media and probably died a lot quicker. So I, I think, you know, we find in the marketing industry that things, you know, have a one day shelf life. You, you produce something, it, it, it appears, sometimes it catches light in the, the public's imagination. Other times it just dissolves and disappears. And I think what was interesting was it got quite a lot of conventional press coverage. What might have amplified the message further is how badly it went down at Old Trafford. While speaking to the media in a pre-season tour, United boss Sir Alex Ferguson branded the move arrogant and lashed out at City, calling them a small club. If you'd been his media advisor, you'd have told him to say nothing because all you're doing is adding fuel to the fire. All you're doing is giving it oxygen to, to last longer. If he'd kept quiet and said nothing, um, that was the noisy neighbours quote, wasn't it? And then, and then he said something to Vicky Kloss after the match about, you know, no more bloody posters or something. I mean, that wasn't the intention. We weren't trying to rile him. We weren't trying to wind him up. But the fact that he let it get to him made it even more effective and even more impactful. And it just made more people talk about it for longer. The billboard was, though, a ballsy move. At the time, City had won nothing. Their most recent trophy was still the 1976 League Cup. Johnny Vulcan believes that sometimes, though, you just have to put your neck on the line and go for it. There was always going to be a risk, but I think, you know, Gary was certainly the kind of person that was up for taking risks. And I think you have to be a bit of a bit bold every now and then and put your chin out if you're going to win those jokes and, and, and put them out there. So, so I, th I think 
we all had confidence that the the path was heading in the right direction. Luckily, it's headed to continue to head in the in the in the right direction. But I thought you just got to give it a go, and even if it lasts a, a week, it was true for that week. When you got the opportunity for a joke. Take it. The whole thing cost City less than £30,000. Even more than a decade on, it's still talked about and referenced today. If you looked at kind of return on investment, which is a, the way you know media is sort of measured, it's probably one of the greatest in the history of the world um, in terms of the amount of coverage, the amount of cultural impact, the amount of response and reaction that it had uh, to one poster. You know, that's the most remarkable thing. I mean, it was up for two weeks. That's the other thing. It was only up for two weeks because that's the that's the life span when you buy an outdoor site. And for all the parodies that City fans are sent, depicting new United signings in red along with the same three words, it's clear that nobody outside of City fans gets the joke. That just proves the fact that the lack of local insight. And, and I think that you just, you own... You own the original, the first, and I think that's the exciting thing. Is that you've you've always got that 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 meme is like, well, we started it, so it's a, it's a city thing to own and love, and it's very pure. Even Sir Alex Ferguson didn't get it when asked about it on that pre-season tour. He said they think taking Carlos Tevez away from Manchester United is a triumph. It's poor stuff. But this wasn't about stealing a player that United wanted. It was simply that United are based in Salford. I'm Terry Feeling, and you're listening to the Blue Moon Podcast. Thank you very much. Please give us your backing. Patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. That was a look at the Welcome to Manchester poster. Um, when you look back on that, Dom, um, how, how how does it make you feel when you consider what City did at that time? It was, um, <laughs> it was it's quite funny, wasn't it? I mean, um, yeah, I, don't, I mean, you'd imagine the the intention was below the uh, the reaction it got from Alex Ferguson. So um, yeah, I think I think all involved were very very happy with the work, but. Um, it's, it actually made me think of when I when I was out in Porto for the Champions League final. Um, the night before, I went and grabbed a bit of food, like on the front where all the City fans were, and there was um there was a guy there who was talking to three locals, one of whom appeared to be a single lady who he was sort of trying to impress with various bits of chat, but he was talking to her through her mate who spoke English, he was like translating. <laughs> and one of the things he was talking about, he was explaining. He said, that, "He said the thing is, City fans." come from Manchester, United fans come from everywhere else. It's like, what an absolutely phenomenal football club. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> the, the, it's like all, all this time that's passed from the poster and beyond then, it's like, and you're at the Champions League final, talking to a beautiful woman from Portugal, and it's like, and this is your choice of crack. It's like, <laughs> so I think that maybe explains how perfectly pitched that poster was in terms of tapping into a certain thing in the, the city supporting psyche. Yeah, Richard, it was a brave move given that City hadn't won anything at that point. They were the, the last trophy was still the the League Cup in nineteen seventy six. But that, I mean, that's that's the beauty of it, isn't it? From from a City fan point of view, at the very least, like that was. I mean, I, I'm, I'm probably just going to like City explain exactly what everybody already knows <laughs> here, but, but like the long running joke, the thing that we always had was City are in Manchester and City fans are from Manchester. United 
are outside of the the city borders and all that stuff. But that was like that poster, like officially club endorsed that joke. And like that's an incredible thing. And it's like the one thing that they couldn't, United couldn't take that away from us. Of, of course, they were far more successful than City. And historically, of course, they still are. But um, that they, they couldn't claim it. And it, I think that's why it irritated them so much because it immortalised it. Like you say, I mean, we are talking about it today. Um, and you've, you've got um, a, a brilliant feature on it there with people who were involved in designing it who obviously have fond memories of it and are still happy to talk about it. Like it's, it is a cultural thing in, in city history and in Mancunian football history and therefore by default English football history. And it's, it just, it's just wonderful. Like they, they, they will never take it off us no matter how much they try because yeah. anything they try misses the joke. Um, and, and that's just a, that's a perfect thing. They can never, ever top that or take it off us. Yeah, that's the thing, though, isn't it, Dom? Every time you see one of the parodies come up, it's like the answer is always, you just don't get the joke. You, you clearly just don't get the joke. The joke is that you're not in Manchester. That's it. It's as simple as that. And the joke is the location of the poster on the end of Deansgate by the river, by the border. We're so <laughs> It's like, it's, come on. It's it's not hard. But, well, apparently it is because, yeah, the... the um, I mean, oh, the, the Sancho par- par- parody was just bizarre. I mean, I've... I've, I've, I've Nothing more to say, really. Now, uh, I did ask Gary Cook, City CEO at the time of the Welcome to Manchester poster, to be part of that feature. Uh, but we were only able to speak to him very late in the week, right before recording the show. So here he is. I started by asking him his reaction when he was first shown the idea. We were very much at the stage where we were trying to declare our ambition. Um, I think it's, it's easy now uh, for those that you know, intersect with Manchester City at this point to think that uh, it's always been the way it is. Um, I think you know as well as anybody wasn't always that way. And I think the biggest challenge for us was to go from a sort of a, a culture of mediocrity to one of ambition. And I think when you're ambitious and you're bold and you're aggressive in who you want to be, uh, like anything in life, you can be a little bit cheeky and you can have some fun with it, right? So, so I'd worked with a company when I was with Michael Jordan in America, a company called Anomaly. They were based in New York. And uh, there was the head executive there who was actually a Tottenham Hotspur fan. His name is Carl Johnson. He worked with a guy, uh, one of his co-founders, a guy called Johnny Vulcan. And they had a guy with them working with them, one of their agents called Stephen Corliss. And uh, he was working with the marketing department. And he wasn't getting very far with this idea that actually Carlos Tevez is coming to City. It's like from United, that's like welcome to Manchester, you know. And so Dave Pullen, who was my creative and brand and uh, brand guy at the time, came into my office and uh, he said, listen, the, <laughs> the lads in New York have got an idea. And I went, oh, right. And he said, look at this. And he sort of unraveled it. And I went, ooh. And he said, listen, it's one time, it's on the side of a wall, it will make a noise, and David actually said that, uh, what do you think? And I said, I, I think we, we need to speak to Vicky Kloss, who was the, com- the com- communications director. And she came in and she went, oh, I, d- I don't know about that. 
And David said, listen, it's just one time. It's a one-time hit. It's almost to say, um, you know, it, it's a bit of fun. It won't, it, it's going to be okay. It's going to be a message and we'll get through it. And uh, I just said, yeah, let's go for it. And really, to be perfectly honest, I, I don't know if you've ever heard the cost of it, but it was really cheap in commercial media terms. And the rest of it, of course, is history because as soon as it landed, it, uh, it, it, it captured a lot of hearts and minds. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the other side of it is, I mean, it's a, it's a very bold statement to make at the time as well because you, you're almost, you were poking the Manchester United bear a little bit and City hadn't won anything at that point as well. It was, it was, it was a state, it really was a statement of ambition, wasn't it? Yes, I think a lot of things that we were doing were, David, they, they, you know, we, we weren't, uh, we didn't have the history and the heritage of um, Manchester United. And, you know, it, it's, it's strange. We, we have, we ha- had, uh, and I'm sure everybody still does, has the greatest respect for those in the industry. And Manchester United had set and built a legacy that uh, was unheralded and you couldn't, you couldn't just create that. You, you were never going to compete on the same level. Um, but we wanted to give everybody hope. And we wanted to allow ourselves to dream. Because if you think about our, our messaging to the community, to the fans, to the, you know, to the world, it was city till I die and typical city. And they don't. They didn't really inspire uh, ambition and success. And you know, you, you know, the you could you could say "City till I die" to a ten-year-old who's going to be sported. He's only just arrived. He's only just got here. He's not thinking about the other the other part, the other end. So, so we felt that we needed to just be a little cheeky and a little and test the, the water a little bit. I think "Welcome to Manchester" was was no different than trying to sign Kaka or trying to, uh, or, or building, rebuilding the city, uh, the city square around the retail. It was, it was no more than any of that. Now here's the, David, here's the caveat to it all. Um, I'd been working in America for several years and you're allowed to do that there. And we were at Nike and we were allowed to do that there. And I came to Manchester, to England, to football. You're not supposed to do that there. So it was that I, I didn't realize the impact it was going to have, that whole thing. But I didn't realize a lot of the things that we were trying to do was going to have the impact that it did. But I, I just always felt that everybody that came to those games, that were keen City fans, that used to stop me in the street, tell me their stories of, third division football and Paul Dickoff at Wembley. And I mean, it just, you just felt like give, give everybody some hope and ambition. How, how was it behind the scenes at City after Sir Alex Ferguson had commented on it after he, because he, he, he made a comment in pre-season in, uh, on, on United's tour of, it was something like uh, it, it's typical of City. It's typical of a small club like City. What, what, what did that say to you that it, that it got under his skin? I did still have, like many, um, you, you don't have to love individuals or, um, you know, b- 
be their best friend or you just have to respect. Uh, and what Alex Ferguson achieved uh, on and off the field is really quite magnificent. That didn't mean to say that you didn't have a right to poke fun, right? I mean, I, I've never, you know, I've worked with some of the greatest athletes in the world and I've poked fun at them as well. So I didn't see why anybody should be immune to that. But it wasn't really aimed at anybody. It was it really, it was to give Manchester City fans hope, tongue-in-cheek, wry smile, that's funny, that's cool, that's interesting. I actually think the fact that Alex Ferguson, Sir Alex Ferguson, rose to the moment was, was a bit more telling than perhaps we thought. You know, most people would just ignore it, wouldn't they? Unless it really got to them. This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast. That was Gary Cook speaking to me about the Welcome to Manchester poster. Now, this season, we're being sponsored by Football Prizes, and that means you could win some exclusive Manchester City prizes. This week, they've got a bumper competition, and your entry could win an Aguero, De Bruyne and Foden triple-signed frame, plus a Raheem Sterling mount and one of David Silva's boots. Uh, Richard, when it comes to, to all of those players, is there one is there one one of those players that you would say, actually, I want that on my wall. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know if it'd go on my wall because it'd be an odd place for it. But a David Silver boot, incredible, isn't it? Yeah, it's a, yeah. That's an, that's an amazing, amazing prize. It's a boot of I, I think the best player that's ever played for City. So yeah, what a, what a prize that is. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, if you'd like to be in the draw, entries are nine pounds ninety five each, but there are only one hundred and forty nine entries available. So it's a little bit like an online raffle. You'll get ten percent off your entry price with the code Blue Moon Ten. That's B L U E M O N Ten. Just go to footballprizes.co.uk for more information. Ten percent of the money raised from entries will also go to City in the community. Entries close at seven thirty p.m. UK time on Wednesday, the twenty. 5th of August and we've got a free ticket into the draw to give away to Blue Moon Podcast listeners for the chance to win that simply email bluemoonpodcast at gmail.com with your name and contact phone number that's bluemoonpodcast at gmail.com just send us your name and your contact phone number if you want to be sure of being in the draw though use the code bluemoon10 for a 10% discount on your entry at footballprizes.co.uk Time to look ahead to the game with Norwich now. And uh, first things first, good news, everyone. Uh, the coffee cups this season, Richard, they're going to be edible. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I don't want to be <laughs> impressed by this. But um, as somebody who sort of almost strictly doesn't buy anything within the ground because it's expensive and I'd rather put my money elsewhere, uh, this probably probably will tempt me into getting a coffee in the stadium. And Amazing. I, of course, of course, if I'm going to get a coffee, I'm obviously going to eat the cup, aren't I? <laughs> so, I mean, what's it? I don't understand though, because I've not. What's it made of? I don't, I don't know. I, what, I, what's it going to? Do you know? Like, Dom, have you got any idea what it's going to taste like? Like, it can't no, taste. It? Can't taste nice, can it? Surely. Right. Well, I've good news here because I've thought about this and looked into this far too much, having probably as a residual effect of becoming a bit of a coffee wanker during lockdown. Um, <laughs> There is there's a website I got today, which I think was called ediblecoffeecups.com, so something very similar. Other brands are available. <laughs> um, and it, it appears to be like various sort of um, ice cream cone, waffle cone type ideas. And you can get some with some chocolate on, and it looks great. But but then that the question it then threw to me, and I'll throw it back to you guys, is with it being like an ice cream cone, do you, do you eat it? At the end of your brew, <laughs> or do you eat it as you go down, like with an ice cream cone? I mean, who oh, knows? 
Am I am I having a fever dream? Like what? <laughs> what what's, you preview in the first home game of the season, and here we are sat talking about edible coffee cups. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I mean, the other thing, Richard, all, all cups are edible if you just you know if you if you're committed enough, aren't they? <laughs> uh, I I think that needs to come with a disclaimer, David. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you might be right. Uh, well, let's get to the uh, to the actual football then, uh, because Matt on Twitter asks, uh, what are your thoughts on the way City have handled the whole ticketed issues over the summer? Feels very, very amateur to me. Very little information available for fans. Phone lines basically redundant due to wait times. Just feels extremely poor for such a high-profile club. Uh, and meanwhile, John Rogers also on Twitter says, in terms of inclusion and access for all, how can City support season ticket holders without access to print at home or more high-spec mobile? phones. Regularly popping down to collect a paper ticket isn't really good enough, is it? Are City accidentally or deliberately losing older blues? Richard, what do you reckon? Um, I think this is a... Um, it, it, I find it quite a difficult one to speak about because I'm not... This might be quite a poor thing to say, but I'm not affected by any of the issues that might affect other people. So... I think from that perspective, the, the biggest problem I can I can see is the issue of some people having to go to the ground before every game. Like that's that's clearly not a reasonable expectation to be putting on people, and I, I don't see how there um, there can't be another way around that. That it, it seems pretty extraordinary to me. I think the idea of mobile ticketing in itself is um, is fine because I think most people. And again, this might be an out of touch thing to say. I think most people probably can do that, but there have to there have to be better options for for people that can't. And then the other issues, um, you know, I only know anecdotally um, the issues of trying to get through to the ticket office. And um, and to be fair, City have been pretty late with giving some of the information out. Um, like that's that's all really really poor. And unfortunately, none of it really surprises me with City. The communication with the fans uh, does leave a lot to be desired sometimes. Um, I, I don't think I'd go so far as to suggest that they're deliberately leaving any type of fan behind because I think from a business point of view, which is how City view the fans, um, as unromantic as that is to think about, like if you've got the money, then your money's good, isn't it? If you can pay the ticket price and get into the stadium, then your money's good for City, I think. Um, so I don't think they deliberately leave any demographic behind or anything like that. But um yeah, I think communication is a huge issue. My um, my favourite part in it all was um, on the FAQs about mobile ticketing. There was the question that obviously came up quite a lot. Um, what do you do if your mobile device runs out of charge before you get to the ground? <laughs> and although there was more to it, the first line of the answer was, please ensure your mobile device is fully charged before you get to the <laughs> ground. So, well, yeah, it's not quite answering the question. And these mobile ports, I'm sure, will be... Um, the charging ports outside the ground will probably be, uh, I would imagine, quite in demand. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't think they've handled it brilliantly. I think they could do more for people uh, that will face some of the issues detailed there. For what the answer is, um, I'm, I've probably not thought about it enough, or um, you know, probably maybe not the right person to give the answer on that one. I guess. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's talk about the actual football, Dom. Um... After the Spurs game, we talked about missing chances. We talked about the the fitness and the performance. Um, Norwich, like in many ways, because they're a newly promoted side, City should be looking at this game going, right, newly promoted side at home, 
it, they have to get three points. But it always comes with the caveat that it's early in the season. They're flying high, having just done well in the championship the season before. Okay, brought down to earth with a with a defeat against Liverpool, but there's there's enough there to be nervous about it, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, the the, the point to be the the war, you know the sort of the the warning or the things to be worried about, I suppose, is the the manner in which Norwich beat City when they were last in the Premier League, which was again a game. You know, a lot of the moments of that were all in transition very fast on the break. And that's a strength of theirs. I mean, the other side of that, though, is they did then fall away that season. And I think the manner of their loss to Liverpool was quite damaging in that it just looked like Norwich's second, the second half of last season, Premier, the last time they were in the Premier League, of played quite a lot of nice stuff, didn't really have much cutting edge and looked very vulnerable defensively. And the other thing is that Carroll Road defeat came with a couple of the biggest blasts on the Otamendi klaxon you can ever imagine. <laughs> um, so that that isn't an issue anymore. So yeah, there's obviously it, this is like a lot of the things around the Spurs game. The wide message has been to not panic. I suppose the sort of thing that would provoke panic is if this became a performance like Wolves at home in 2019-20. If those yeah. sort of things happen again then that's when there'll be people will be getting a bit jittery. But I think it probably looks like the ideal game to bounce back, which is obviously the, the bit to clip up at the end of the season when they've lost. But yeah, that's how I'd see it. Yeah. Uh, Richard, in terms of uh, the team, uh, are, there, are there any players that need to get on the pitch for this, do you think, in terms of uh, just getting ready for the season and the, the season ahead in terms of fitness? And like with that in mind... It's it. They obviously want the points because they're they're now three points off the table, but off the top of the table. But the performance has to be good as well, I guess, does it? Yeah, I mean, the, to answer the, the last question first, um, I think performance is always a, a really big thing because you can have results that are against the norm or against the run of play, um, but but if your performance is good and in the pattern of how you want to play, then that's still an indicator that the next game out is probably going to go in your favour if you're a team as good as City. Like as, as long as your performance is still meeting the principles of, of how you want to play, um, then then that's a really, really big thing um, because freak results happen. Um, but the points are absolutely huge in this game. I, I don't know that you could go so far as to call second game of the season a must win, but like not all defeats or draws across the season are equal because if you drop points in the second game having already lost the first game you're looking at you lose that little bit of slip room and that margin for error for the remaining 36 games um so it's it's pretty important that they win and and hopefully that they win well and then in terms of getting uh, of players that I'd like to see on the pitch um I, I probably relate that more to players that without what wanting to be too harsh players that I want to see off the pitch um, because <laughs> based, like, based on that first game and well his City career to be honest I, I don't really want to see Mendy on the pitch so I'd like to see um, Zinchenko there because he's a very capable left back um, I, I don't know and, and this is probably pretty poor uh, preparation on my part before previewing the game I don't know where we're up to with Walker and Stones returning, but if if it's not Zinchenko, then having Walker back and, and pushing pushing uh, Cancelo 
out to the left, although granted he didn't cover himself in glory against Spurs, but we know he's a good player. That would be an option. Um, and and I'd, I'd, I'd love to see John Stones back next to Diaz. Um, but certainly, um, Mendy in particular, and, and to a slightly lesser extent, because I think there's far more mitigating circumstances, um, I, I wouldn't really want Aki starting either. Um, so yeah, sort of a, a slightly backwards answer, but it's more my concern of not wanting players to um, to be a regular part of the first team. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I just teed you up to say De Bruyne there, to be honest with you. But here we are. You didn't say him. But... <laughs> well, 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 I got uh, I, I got too bad down in the negatives. I'd love yeah. to see De Bruyne play. David. There we go. That's all I wanted to hear. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, to get the Norwich perspective on this game, I've been speaking to Chris Reeve from the Talk Norwich City podcast. I started by asking him how much of a welcome back to the Premier League last weekend's defeat against Liverpool was. Well, as you said, David, a, a, a very, very, very tough game indeed. And of course, a, a lovely, easy breeze of a game for, for Norwich City coming up next it's only away at your at your stadium it's going to be a really really big ask an even bigger ask we were debating this on the Talk Norwich City podcast this week as well uh, of course um, you know most Man City fans will remember the the famous 3-2 win for us when we were in the Premier League last time at Carrow Road and that was very much a David versus Goliath situation you know the amount of injuries we had Everything was against us and yet we managed the impossible. And it feels like the space between our two clubs is even vaster now in terms of the amount of money that you you guys have spent in, in contrast to us. So look, the backs are against the wall. There's no expectation on Norwich City at all. Of course, the home fans are back at the Etihad, which will give you guys a really, really big lift. So... Look, it's one of those ones where, you know, of course, the the story that everyone wants to tell is that Manchester City will will walk this. It'll be an absolute breeze. It'll be, what, four, five, six nil. But you never know. Norwich City have improved their squad defensively. We've got some some real pace, actually, on the wings, which I know, um, you know, Tottenham hurt you guys with. So, look, I would be careful uh, with writing Norwich City off. This could be a huge banana skin for Manchester City. But I don't think it will be. <laughs> well, I was going to bring up the uh, the 3-2 at, at Carrow Road because um, obviously City fans will will remember that game as, as a bad City performance and a, and a good Norwich one. Um, how, how has the squad developed since then? Because obviously you went down, you come back up with, well, with flying colours last season. Um, how have you moved on from then? Well, factually, we've spent the most money we've, ever spent we've spent um i think the equivalent of four seasons combined in one season we've invested it in our defense hugely um bringing in the, the likes of dimitri Giannoulis, who was rumored to go to roma porto slash newcastle prior to us for for good money ben gibson who of course was when in the burnley side he was flirting around the england setup we have lost Emi Buendia. That's, of course, a massive loss. And most people will think that's going to be a huge problem. But we have reinvested that money immediately in the likes of Christos Zoles, who is a real, real untapped potential diamond for Norwich City. It could be our next Emi Buendia. Uh, a very, very young guy who's rumoured to go to Manchester United just a season ago. Made his professional debut last season. He's one to watch. But on the other side, we've got Milo Rashica, who um, who was real a real big hit in Bundesliga a couple of seasons ago. So, look, that's how the squad's developed in a nutshell. But we've still got the likes of Todd Cantwell, who Man City fans know can cause damage against you. We've still got the likes of Timmy Puki as well. So you've got a few familiar faces there. 
Um, but overall, I'd say we've improved our defence um, and uh, we, we've definitely, definitely bought quality on either wing, which I think will hurt Premier League opposition a hell of a lot more this time. Yeah, I mean, I was going to mention Cantwell as well because there was obviously when City were after Grealish, there was talk of, of it being like a, a knock-on effect with Ward-Prowse then potentially moving to Villa and Cantwell to Southampton, that sort of thing. Has it all gone quiet on the Cantwell front? Is he is he likely to be at Norwich come the end of the window? Yeah, uh, confirmed by um, confirmed by all, all of all of the right people that Todd Cantwell. Um, well, he certainly won't be going to Villa. Um, Villa have confirmed that. Norwich confirmed he's not going to Villa. Look, I think. Football's a funny old business. I think things can change really quickly. And with the amount of money that's washing around um, in this window um, from, uh, you know, by and from the big clubs, look, if a club comes in for 40 million and with 40 million and reaches the Norwich City asking price, you know, Norwich City uh, is all very well and good them saying, yeah, we'd reject it, we'd reject it. But when someone offers 40 million pounds to a self-sustaining football club, it's very, very difficult for Norwich to turn down. And, Everyone knows English players are worth more in the market um, and uh, he's got a lot of latent potential to fulfil and he had a really good debut season in the Premier League. Eight goals, loads of assists, scored against the, the biggest and best size, be it Man City, for example. So, yeah, fingers crossed he's he's still in yellow and green by the end of this window. Um, I've I've requested that the club keep him locked away in our new soccer bot <laughs> centre and don't let him out anywhere because um, he he really is that 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 man that, that can turn a game on its head in in, in any given instance. Yeah, so uh, just looking at this game in particular then on uh, on Saturday, um, how how do you read it? Because obviously City are City are late back from from preseason. They had a, a bad result against Leicester in the Community Shield, and then another bad result against Spurs in uh, in the opening Premier League game. Um, City, I think City fans are a little bit worried that City might be there to be got at. Where, where's Norwich's preparations in this? Are they are they a, a sort of team that could get at City this time around? Well, I, I, I can't read it, but I'm more than happy to tell you the factors going into this game, David, which is that Norwich City have missed two preseason games. That showed against Liverpool. After 55 minutes, we were absolutely cream crackered. We were really, really tired. Now, I think that will impact against Manchester City. However, as I've already mentioned, all the expectation is on Manchester City. You know, you guys have had you know a few disappointing 1-0 losses, which will be playing on your minds as well. Um, look... The thing is, David, is whenever whenever Norwich play one of the big boys like Man City, when we've won, it's when we've given it a go. It's when we've played attacking football. It's when we've bought the game to you. It's when we've we've you know put Nicholas Otamendi on his on his backside. But do I think that will happen again? No, I don't. Um, everyone will be saying you know Norwich need to defend. We need to park the bus. I don't think that's how you beat Man City. I don't personally think that's how, how how you beat Man City. I think you have to go for shock factor, particularly as a smaller team, because if you don't, eventually when you've got players like Grealish, De Bruyne, the list goes on, you will pick us apart. So those are the factors going into this game. And honestly, hand on heart from a Norwich City point of view, I'm normally optimistic and confident. I'm absolutely petrified going into this game. <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, let's uh, let's get a prediction on the board. I, they're, they're so hard to predict at this stage of the season. Coming off the back of an international tournament during a, during a worldwide pandemic, I get it's even harder. Uh, but we got the charity bet coming up, so uh, let's have your score prediction and uh, and how you think the game's going to go. Oh, well, I'd, I'd normally say my, my my head and my heart, but I, actually, you know what? My head and my heart are predicting the same thing. I think this is going to be a four 0 Man City. I just I just don't see. 
with the amount of quality you guys have got, I, I just I can't see another Premier League miracle. I can't see Norwich doing it. But I kind of quite like that because that's exactly what I said last time, David. I made a bet that Aguero would score four and you'd beat us 7-0 at Cairo. <laughs> but look what we did. So fingers crossed. It's a, it's a yellow and green dream. You're listening to the Blue Moon Podcast. You've made it this far, so don't give up now. That was Chris Reeve from Talk Norwich City. Now, just before we get some predictions for the charity bet, let's catch up with Nick from the Man City Fans Food Bank Support because this weekend we'll see their first collection at a men's game since the pandemic began. Uh, Nick, welcome to the show. Uh, how are you feeling about being back? It's uh, it's all good, isn't it? Oh, no, it's fantastic. I've been... I felt I felt like we were never going to get back. Um, been waiting this for this for a long time. Um, yeah, just just can't wait to get back, back at the stadium. And that's uh, feedback stuff aside. So uh, where where are you going to be, and for how long ahead of the game? So exactly the same as uh, last season. The, the the short time that we did end up being in operation um, right at the end of uh, Sir Howard Bernstein Way, um, opposite the Big Asda, um, on the corner opposite the next entire bridge, I think it is called. So, uh, yeah, you'll see us with uh, our banners and gazebo. I was going to say, you're hard to miss, aren't you? you got all the banners and stuff there. You'll have all that out, won't you? Yeah, lovely stuff. Yeah. Um, everyone loves a bit of a promo. <laughs> don't they? Yeah. Uh, what sort of things can people bring? Because obviously this is uh, asking for donations to support the, the food banks in Greater Manchester. Um, what do they need right now? Well, um, the most recent communication we've had from them, um, it's generally the similar sort of stuff, but specifically uh, long life milk, um, tinned meat, tinned fish and vegetables, always welcome, um, pasta sauce, uh, biscuits, rice and um, toiletries and sanitary products, you know, it's always something that's really important. Yeah, and uh, of course, you you guys are putting in all the work before the game. Are you going to get to see the game this season? Are you gonna get, you're not going to miss the first half an hour or so again anymore, are you sure you're not? Yeah, no, no, definitely. Um, we've uh, managed to pull some strings behind the scenes and um, we actually, well, I can say we're announcing, yeah, we're delighted to announce um, an agreement with um, the National Squash Centre, um, the, also known as the Manchester Regional Arena, which is uh, just on one side of the stadium at the Etihad campus and uh, it's run by Manchester Active and uh, GLL. Um, and they've agreed to basically, uh, uh, yes, store some of our stuff um, before and after collections, Um which is absolutely amazing. It means that we're not running back to uh, our mate's flat and missing the first uh, 30 minutes of kick of the game. Um, and we can actually hopefully get in on time yeah. while a mobile ticket in a side. Good stuff. Uh, well, yeah, quite. Uh, so, yeah, please do make a donation ahead of the Norwich game uh, because it's the first collection since the start of the pandemic. Nick, thank you very much. Uh, best of luck for Saturday, Mike. Oh, thank you very much. And I really appreciate the support. Nick from the Man City Fans Food Bank Support. Uh, we're raising money for the Trussell Trust this season as well on the podcast. That's a charity working to help those who are living in food poverty. The money will go to supporting the 19 food banks currently operating in Greater Manchester. Each of us is getting a £10 correct score single from William Hill. We already heard from uh, Chris Reeve that he thinks City are going to win 4-0 on uh, Saturday, which is 15-2 to and £75. Let's get some predictions from these two. Uh, Richard, I'll start with you. What's your uh, What's your prediction for this game? I'm going to go for City to win 3-0. 3-0 is 11-2 to two and £55 if you're right. Dom? Um, I'm, I'm continuing the theme of us going, um, yeah, City don't look great, but then predicting a, a romping big win. I'm going 4-1. A um, little bit more positive than Chris, that I think um, with the defence still bedding in, I can see Norwich getting a goal uh, before half-time and everyone being nervous over their um, edible bruise. 
Yeah, wouldn't have it any other way, would we? Uh, 14 to 1, if you're right, to £140. Uh, you've got to be 18 or over to gamble. Prices can change, and please gamble responsibly. If you'd like more information on responsible gambling, have a look at begambleaware.org. Now then, on this week's show and on next week's show, we're giving away a copy of the new book, Standing Alone, by the athletic writers Sam Lee, Daniel Taylor, and Ollie Kay. All you've got to do is reply to one of our Facebook posts or tweets with a question for the podcast. The best questions get picked for the show, and then the panel, these guys, are going to decide which questions featured will win the prize. It's as simple as that. So we've heard a couple already, but we're going to start for the final bit of the show with Ian Burnett on Twitter, who asks, after John Stones' redemption last season, after being close to being sold, do you think Jesus or Mendy could do something similar? Richard, given what you've said already in this show, uh, I think I think I know where your answer might go, so I'm going to turn this one to Dom. Um, I mean, Mendy, it's really hard to see, isn't it? It's sort of, you know... He was the one player who got a big full preseason, played all the preseason games. Um, I was surprised to see him start Spurs. I thought he was in the preseason games. Being, he'd been coming in the field. I thought he was there as a a placeholder for Cancelo, and then he he's played at Spurs and it's not been good. One thing I would say in his defence is he's a guy who thrives on whipping good balls in from well sometimes good balls in when he doesn't massively overhit them from the left. And of course, as we've discussed, there is no striker there. So even the thing that could be showing off his best qualities isn't available in this team and his bad qualities always seem to get highlighted. On the, with Jesus, I know we might talk about him a little bit more. Um, I struggle to see it, unfortunately, but I do think if, um, if no striker comes in with no Aguero anymore, and Jesus can't go around being second choice to no one in particular anymore. I think if push comes to shove at the end of the window, I think we're, I can't see a redemption happening with Mendy. I think they're going to have to try a resurrection, if you will, with Jesus and try and start try and start up front more regularly and do a sink or swim with him. Yeah, well, uh, just on the Jesus front, Richard, I'll put this one to you because of, uh, of, of, of what you... I'm, I'm interested to get your take because of what you were saying before. Uh, Alan Higgins on Twitter says, do you think Pep is to blame for the dwindling of Gabby Jesus from prodigious raw talent to a workhorse with little end product? We've relied on his work ethic for our high press in key Champions League games, etc. But is there an argument that the tactical taming of Jesus has come at a cost? Uh, well, I suppose there's an argument because it's being made in the question I suppose um, it's not an argument I, I, I don't think I'd go along with I think th- this is going to possibly sound um, a bit contradictory given that I've, I don't think Jesus is, is really up to it as a City player um, or, or not a regular first teamer I wouldn't say he's been tactically tamed I'd probably say his game has been tactically enhanced is when you look at how he started, he was just the guy who scored goals in the box. And I use the word just like really lightly there, because that's an incredible skill to have. Um, and one that's like City are actually crying out for at the moment. <laughs> um, so I, I think his, his overall understanding of the game and, um, and what he offers to the team has been enhanced. I think the fact that, um, he now, I would say, isn't as good at scoring goals and, and isn't as clinical. I'd, I wouldn't put that at Guardiola's door. I think you look at the barren spells that, that Jesus goes through. I mean, there's been um, this, the 1819 uh, season, I think it was, when he, he had the game. Was it four he scored against Burton? Um, there was a point in that season when 
he was getting in the box, and as soon as he got in there, like he, he looked like he'd never played football before, and he was he was missing chances, he was failing to shoot, and I don't think you can blame the manager. Um, I, I don't think you can blame the manager or a coach for a player going from being an instinctive finisher to losing that quality, and, and we see it like we see quite a lot in the Premier League that strikers almost play above themselves for a period and then I guess revert to type and to um, I guess they, they sort of plateau and to be fair J- Jesus's level is, is not a bad level like if you're a squad player in one of the best teams in the world then then you're a damn good footballer so I don't like I don't have an issue with him if he stays at City then fine I think he can be good off the left I think his work rate offers a lot and we've seen some truly world-class performances from him Madrid away is the, the one that always springs to mind for me it's just that as a team that now don't have that focal point up front I don't think Jesus is it and I think that's what he was bought to be and he's always going to be the player that gets brought into this conversation because by trade is a striker so it's you know I don't want to overly like dig out the guy because he offers a lot. I just don't think he's that top, top quality that is now what City need. Yeah. Final question for this show. Uh, ben Johnson on Twitter. Those new third kits, worst ever, not just of City, but of any club. Richard, you've seen it in the flesh. Is it as bad as it looks? Yeah, it's horrific. There's, I mean, <laughs> well, well, there's, a, there's obviously like a funny angle to this where it's just a really bad football kit, but there's also like a, there's a really, it's, it's bizarre to me that this has got past a, what must be a multi-layered design process. Like you hear the, the, the stuff that normally comes with a football kit, particularly like last season, all the bump that they give you beforehand where, you know, the marketing about, oh, it's designed around Castlefield or we've thought about the Manchester Bee. It's like, I, I don't know what they've thought about with this one. And all that stuff is like, it's just great marketing. Like I don't particularly buy into it, but at least there's a thought process there. At least they're trying to sell something to you. This is... It, it's just terrible. And it's fine that like they're doing the identikit stuff because, you know, that's that's gone on forever. Like if you, if you make multiple kits for, for lots of big teams and, and, and countries kits, then they're going to follow a template. So that angle doesn't concern me. But the state of the kit, like it's just bizarre. Why? There's some things don't need to be redesigned. And having a football badge, the, the football crest, as a prominent centerpiece of... Um, of the kit, changing that for the name of the team, it's oh, it's bad. Like it's really, really bad. Um, and it's it's sort of funny how bad it is, but also there's a real risk that we win a trophy in that kit and it's immortalised in that kind of photo forever. It's terrible. It's absolutely well, I, terrible. I was going to say I don't know if I'm playing devil's advocate or not here, Dom, but. Uh... 1999, City unveil that uh, that horrific away kit that uh, is the lurid yellow and, and navy blue. They end up playing at Wembley. It becomes one of the most iconic iconic games that they that that the club has seen. And suddenly that kit is a classic. Could that happen to this one? No, it's terrible, <laughs> isn't it? Um, and do you know what? And this isn't hindsight. I always like the Dayglow stripes kit. Maybe that, that I just thought it was cool, and oh, that, that's also been they've replayed elements of that in subsequent city kits as well. I mean, I, I'd sooner they would. Do, I mean, God, we, we've done a retro kit from a kit that was only ten years old for the home kit this year. If I, I wouldn't mind going back to um, a, you know, the twenty fifth anniversary is coming around soonish, isn't it? Yeah, do, do the do the Dayglow stripes again, but um, it, it is 
it's rubbish, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, it's sort of like the um, every. I mean, the idea is bad, but I was saying to someone before that the the actual font of the Man City on there looks like. Did you see those Adam Curtis documentaries? Yeah, um, yeah. It looks like it looks like Man City should only be in that font if Adam Curtis was, was going to do a documentary <laughs> about the club. It's it's rubbish. But the, I mean, one partial saving grace is. It's not the worst of the succession that have been launched. Some of them look with the, the team name and the sponsor, like you've got Marseille Uber Eats, which just sounds like a Sunday League team. And <laughs> P, PSV, the best one is PSV Brainport Brain Eindhoven, which is like, so it's, it's, it's really bad, but among, amongst that group of 10 lucky clubs who've had this nonsense sort of foisted upon them by Puma, it is. Not the very worst. Yeah. Okay. So uh, it's, it's over. It's over to you, guys. Now, which uh, which question was the most enjoyable to answer? Which one are you going to give the books to? I'll uh, I'll let you confer amongst yourselves, Richard. Any any thoughts? Uh, yeah. The uh, the question about Jesus's role, I thought was a, a really good one because uh, it, it it made me think. So that would be my pick. Uh, go with that, Dom Alan Higgins. I am in agreement. Yeah, because I think it, I think it's a really interesting one. Um, yeah, that would be my pick too. Excellent. Alan, we'll be in touch on Twitter. You've won yourself a copy of Standing Alone, the new book by the athletic writers Sam Lee, Daniel Taylor and Ollie Kay. Uh, That brings us to the end of this week's Blue Moon podcast. Thank you very much for listening. And if you've enjoyed the show, please go and give it a rating and a review in all the usual places, but especially on Apple Podcasts if you can. Don't forget, we've got a string of new bonus shows for Patreon backers this season. Three brand new formats, all of them around 30 minutes in length, and now released on a Monday as well. The latest to go up was Dan Burke talking through his five games that shaped him as a City fan. All the details are on patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast and you'll get a new show every week through the season for just £2 per month. If that's not enough, you'll also get this main show each week completely ad-free. So go and have a look at that, patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. Thanks to my guests this week, Don Farrell. Thank you. And Richard Burns. Thank you very much. I'll be back next week. I'll see you then. the blue moon podcast please support the show patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast